Section 19 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 The Decline and Fall of the Whig Ministry, Part 1. The Melbourne Ministry kept going from bad to worse. There was a great stirring in the country all around them which made their feebleness the more conspicuous we sometimes read in history a defence of some particular sovereign whom common opinion cries down the defence being a reference to the number of excellent measures that were set in motion during his reign if we were to judge of the melbourne ministry on the same principle it might seem indeed as if their career was one of extreme activity and fruitfulness reforms were astir in almost every direction inquiries into the condition of our poor and our labouring classes were to use a cant phrase of the time the order of the day the foundation of the colony of new zealand was laid with a philosophical deliberation and thoughtfulness which might have reminded one of locke and the constitution of the carolinas some of the first comprehensive and practical measures to mitigate the rigour and to correct the indiscriminateness of the death punishment were taken during this period one of the first legislative enactments which fairly acknowledged the difference between an english wife and a purchased slave so far as the despotic power of the master was concerned belongs to the same time this was the custody of infants bill the object of which was to obtain for mothers of irreproachable conduct who through no fault of theirs were living apart from their husbands occasional access to their children with the permission and under the control of the equity judges it is curious to notice how long and how fiercely this modest measure of recognition for what may almost be called the natural rights of a wife and a mother was disputed in parliament or at least in the house of lords it is curious too to notice what a clamour was raised over the small contribution to the cause of national education which was made by the melbourne government in eighteen thirty four the first grant of public money for the purposes of elementary education was made by parliament the sum granted was twenty thousand pounds and the same grant was made every year until eighteen thirty nine then lord john russell asked for an increase of ten thousand pounds and proposed a change in the manner of appropriating the money up to that time the grant had been distributed through the national school society a body in direct connection with the church of england and the british and foreign school association which admitted children of all christian denominations without imposing on them sectarian teaching the money was dispensed by the lords of the treasury who gave aid to applicants in proportion to the size and cost of the school buildings and the number of children who attended them naturally the result of such an arrangement was that the districts which needed help the most got it the least if a place was so poor as not to be able to do anything for itself the lords of the treasury would do nothing for it naturally too the rich and powerful church of england secured the greater part of the grant for itself there was no inspection of the schools no reports were made to parliament as to the manner in which the system worked no steps were taken to find out if the teachers were qualified or the teaching was good 
the statistics of the schools says a writer to the edinburgh review were alone considered the size of the classroom the cost of the building and the number of scholars in eighteen thirty nine lord john russell proposed to increase the grant and an order in council transferred its distribution to a committee of the privy council composed of the president and not more than five members lord john russell also proposed the appointment of inspectors the founding of a model school for the training of teachers and the establishment of infant schools the model school and the infant schools were to be practically unsectarian the committee of the privy council were to be allowed to depart from the principle of proportioning their grants to the amount of local contribution to establish in poor and crowded places schools not necessarily connected with either of the two educational societies and to extend their aid even to schools where the roman catholic version of the bible was read the proposals of the government were fiercely opposed in both houses of parliament the most vigorous and fantastic forms of bigotry combined against them the application of public money and especially through the hands of the committee of privy council to any schools not under the control and authority of the church of england was denounced as a state recognition of popery and heresy scarcely less marvellous to us now are the speeches of those who promoted than of those who opposed the scheme lord john russell himself who was much in advance of the common opinion of those among whom he moved pleaded for the principles of his measure in a tone rather of apology than of actual vindication he did not venture to oppose point-blank the claim of those who insisted that it was part of the sacred right of the established church to have the teaching all done in her own way or to allow no teaching at all the government did not get all they sought for they had a fierce fight for their grant and an amendment moved by lord stanley to the effect that her majesty be requested to revoke the order in council appointing the committee on education was only negatived by a majority of two votes two hundred and seventy five to two hundred and seventy three in the lords to which the struggle was transferred the archbishop of canterbury actually moved and carried by a large majority an address to the queen praying her to revoke the order in council the queen replied firmly that the funds voted by parliament would be found to be laid out in strict accordance with constitutional usage the rights of conscience and the safety of the established church and so dismissed the question the government therefore succeeded in establishing their committee of council on education the institution by which our system of public instruction has been managed ever since the ministry on the whole showed to advantage in this struggle they took up a principle and they stood by it if as we have said the speeches made by the promoters of the scheme seem amazing to any intelligent person of our time because of the feeble apologetic and almost craven tone in which they assert the claims of a system of national education yet it must be admitted that the principle was accepted by the government at some risk and that it was not shabbily deserted in the face of hostile pressure it is worth noticing that while the increased grant and the principles on which it was to be distributed were opposed by such men as sir robert peel lord stanley mr gladstone and mr disraeli it had the support of mr o'connell and of mr smith o'brien 
both these irish leaders only regretted that the grant was not very much larger and that it was not appropriated on a more liberal principle o'connell was the recognized leader of the irish catholics and nationalists smith o'brien was an aristocratic protestant with all the weakness of the whig ministry their term of office must at least be remarkable for the new departure it took in the matter of national education the appointment of the committee of council marks an epoch indeed the history of that time seems full of reform projects the parliamentary annals contains the names of various measures of social and political improvement which might in themselves it would seem bear witness to the most unsleeping activity on the part of any ministry measures for general registration for the reduction of the stamp duty on newspapers and of the duty on paper for the improvement of the jail system for the spread of vaccination for the regulation of the labour of children for the prohibition of the employment of any child or young person under twenty-one in the cleaning of chimneys by climbing for the suppression of the punishment of the pillory efforts to relieve the jews from civil disabilities these are but a few of the many projects of social and political reform that occupied the attention of that busy period which somehow appears nevertheless to have been so sleepy and do-nothing how does it come about that we can regard the ministry in whose time all these things were done or attempted as exhausted and worthless one answer is plain the reforming energy was in the time and not in the ministry in every instance public opinion went far ahead of the inclination of her majesty's ministers there was a just and general conviction that if the government were left to themselves they would do nothing when they were driven into any course of improvement they usually did all they could to minimize the amount of reform to be effected whatever they undertook they seemed to undertake reluctantly and as if only from the object of preventing other people from having anything to do with it naturally therefore they got little or no thanks for any good they might have done when they brought in a measure to abolish in various cases the punishment of death they fell so far behind public opinion and the inclinations of the commission that had for eight years been inquiring into the state of our criminal law that their bill only passed by very narrow majorities and impressed many ardent reformers as if it were meant rather to withhold than to advance a genuine reform in truth it was a period of enthusiasm and of growth and the ministry did not understand this lord melbourne seems to have found it hard to persuade himself that there was any real anxiety in the mind of any one to do anything in particular he had apparently got into his mind the conviction that the only sensible thing the people of england could do was to keep up the melbourne ministry and that being a sensible people they would naturally do this he had grown into something like the condition of a pampered old hall porter who dozing in his chair begins to look on it as an act of rudeness if any visitor to his master presumes to knock at the door and so disturb him from his comfortable rest any one who doubts that it was really a time of enthusiasm in these countries has only to glance at its history the church of england and the church of scotland were alike convulsed by movements which were the offspring of a genuine and irresistible enthusiasm 
enthusiasm of that strong far-reaching kind which makes epochs in the history of a church or a people in ireland father matthew a pious and earnest friar who had neither eloquence nor learning nor genius but only enthusiasm and noble purpose had stirred the hearts of the population in the cause of temperance as thoroughly as peter the hermit might have stirred the heart of a people to a crusade many of the efforts of social reform which are still periodically made among ourselves had their beginning then and can scarcely be said to have made much advance from that day to this in july eighteen forty mr hume moved in the house of commons for an address to the throne praying that the british museum and the national gallery might be opened to the public after divine service on sundays at such hours as taverns beer-shops and gin-shops are legally open the motion was of course rejected but it is worthy of mention now as an evidence of the point to which the spirit of social reform had advanced at a period when lord melbourne had seemingly made up his mind that reform had done enough for his generation and that ministers might be allowed at least during his time to eat their meals in peace without being disturbed by the urgencies of restless radicals or threatened with hostile majorities and tory successes end of section nineteen